We need to talk about um, some housekeeping things. First, remember, if you look at your calendar, we're changing our next meeting from February 19th to actually March 5th. So not February 19th. Instead, replace that with Saturday, March 5th. And what I found out after doing that, because it's always, the way that it is now with the church, you can't ever <coughs> reschedule something without it competing with something else, but the, the women have Wellspring that morning. And so for those of you who have your wives in Wellspring, and you have little ones at home, and you guys you know, work on that thing, I, I may have created an op- obstacle for you to have to work out. Um, so I, I suggest arm wrestling with your wife and see who wins. If you lose, please do not tell anybody. (laughs) Protect your manhood at all costs. (laughs) Just kidding. Uh, But you'll you'll need to to be mindful of that as you work that out. And and if you need to miss so that you can serve your wife and be home, I I hope you would do that. And uh, just be online and listen. Okay. And uh, we probably need to give up that manhood thing. Yeah. Uh, that, that actually, that actually is biblical manhood that you would give up and uh, serve your wife that way. So you can do that. All right. So is that clear? Not on the 19th, um, March 5th instead. And then um, let's talk about the Shepherds Conference again, which is coming up. And I don't have the the, the info in front of me again, so I can't remember. It's the next week after Saturday the 5th. So Sunday the 6th, 7th, 8th, it's, it's the 9th. March, Wednesday, March 9th is when it begins, about 10 o'clock in the morning. Um, the way that it works, uh, we, we try to just encourage all you guys to go, as many of you who want. Um, what you do is you go online and you register yourself for the conference. The conference is $300, and then you also have room and board that you need to take care of after that and, and, and a little bit of food. Um, so uh, you sign up on the, online, and then if you want to stay with us in the hotel that we've reserved a block of rooms for, uh, you can't think that when you hit click on the internet website, Shepherd's Conference, that all of a sudden Cassidy knows. She doesn't know until you email her and tell her that you're going. And we don't know that you, if you want to write out with us, we don't know that you're writing out with us until you tell us that you signed up. So do you understand? Register yourself online <coughs> on the Shepherds Conference website and then email Cassidy to tell her you are uh, registered for the conference, you want to stay in the hotel with us, and you want to drive out with us. If you um, are driving out or flying out on your own, and you are staying with friends or family that you may have out there, uh, you don't need to let Cassidy know. Uh, it'd be nice to know that, so we get, we know all the guys who are coming, but, but uh, Cassidy needs to know primarily so she can take care of uh, hotel room and, and uh, carpool and stuff. Does that make sense? Also, if you um, have... Um, a, a concern financially that it, it, it'd be a hardship for you to do all of that because uh, it is expensive we understand that um, please we let me know or let Tom know or let Scott know um, 
and we'll uh, we'll talk together about that. We have a, a, a way that we can go after that, okay? So that if we can help you out or get creative with how you pay, um, if you can sign your children over into servitude or something for the church, um, we'll, we'll work out anything so you can go. <laughs> Is that going to cost us more? <laughs> so anyway, please talk to us. We, I don't. None of the elders would want finances to be something that would hinder you from going. Um, so, and we recognize too that there are seasons of life in which um, financially it may not be the best decision for you to go, and we do not want to lead you into a poor financial decision that's going to hurt you and your family. Um, but if there's a way that we can be creative that, that will help you, we'd love to do that. Okay? All right. Well, let's talk about your uh, the, the disciplines on the back of your notebook. Right? Um, in fact, you know what? As you do that, you know, I want to do something else first. Uh, look back at your calendar. If you would, please. And then we'll talk about the disciplines. I just want you to see where we've come. We're on the 10th um, lesson or the 10th meeting on February 5th. So we're, we're over, well over halfway done. And we have, after today, we will have made it through the first four <coughs> disciplines. We spent three times on the heart, two times on the, or three times on the home, two lessons together on the ministry, and we're working through the qualifications uh, for deacon. Um, last week and this week. And then what we will do um, once we come back is we'll, uh, for our next meeting, is we're going to kind of review a couple of these, the heart, the home, then we'll tackle discipline six, kind of out of order, and then we'll spend the last three meetings on discipline five, the hermeneutic. Okay? So I just want you to see where we've come. We've covered a lot of ground. If you haven't been here, as much. <laughs> For the guys who have been through this before, um, they, there's a lot of grace towards them, too. Because there has to be. <laughs> it's fun. And we won't use your name on the recorder this morning. Derek. <laughs> Now let's look at the back of your notebook and let's remind ourselves of what uh, our disciplines are. These are the things that when you get kicked in the middle of the night, you want to be able to just say, the heart, the heart, I'm shuffling my heart. That's what you want to do when you wake up. So number one, the heart. You want to make sure that you're a man focusing on the heart, your heart at all times, that your your goal is to... um, because of God's work through his son at the cross and what he has done to reconcile you to himself and to make you one of his own, that you have been adopted by him, you've been declared righteous by him, he's made you into a new creature in Christ, you have new desires, your first and foremost job is to feed those new desires of the new man. And the way that you do that is by dragging your heart before the word of God, exposing your heart to the God of the word so that your soul can interact with its maker and love and worship and desire and depend on. Um, 
your God. That's what you must do. <coughs> Come to the Word of God with that in mind primarily, with that at the first and foremost uh, place in your mind. Uh, you will be a man who is full of God. Um, you will have a life uh, of power um, to live for Him. And you will be of most benefit to other people. If you come to the Word of God for lesser reasons, primarily for your, the course of your life, God will work. Um, but you will not be the man that you could have been and should have been. And others will not benefit from you um, like they could have. Which makes us then think about discipline too, your home, where you live. Um, you need to be, you know, you know when you're kids or when you were a kid, I used to do this, I don't know why, and I'm still this way to a, a degree. If you have a glass and you're going to fill it with water or you're going to fill it with milk or anything, you fill it up to the top. You make the use of the space, right? And when I was a kid, I can remember pouring myself a big glass of milk all the time. And there would be times I would, you know, not rushing and not being very much in control, and it would, like, crest over. And I can remember looking down at it at times, and you see that, that weird, you know, um, where you've got, it, it's, it, what is it, the, the tip? Yeah, the meniscus. It's, it's, it's arced over, right? And you, you need to be full like that, because when it's that full, you try as a kid to pick up that glass, and you just touch it and spill. That's what you must be as a man of God. You, you must have, be so full of God in his word that anybody who touches you, just you spill out God to them. Because you've met with him, you've drawn near to him, you are full of him, you're full of the spirit through the word of God. So... Um, your family needs to, to get soaked by you, and your roommates need to get soaked by you. Your parents, if you live at home, need to get splashed on by you. Um, when you are that kind of a man, shepherding your heart that way, shepherding your family, impacting your household with your heart for God and the Word, you're, you're, a, you're a, the right kind of man to step out into ministry. You're the man in the church that the church needs to be ministering to other people. Uh, outside of the church, you're the man who should be sharing the gospel with people um, because you are pursuing God and your family, your life is, is a life of integrity, that who you are at home is who you are as you're out in ministry talking to people. Um, there's no inconsistencies. Um, you then, uh, we, we have discipline four where we talk about the qualifications. And you'll see this morning as we walk through the deacon <coughs> qualifications that really all of them fall into one of the first three categories. Uh, what, what kind of a man are you before God? Um, what are you like um, in your household? And what are you like among people as you minister to them? Um, what kinds of you know, character qualities or, or abilities do you need to have as you're among people? Um, and so we're going to focus primarily on the deacon qualifications here, point you in that direction. And then um, the fifth discipline is the hermeneutic. We changed that from the years past. Um, and are focusing in on it a little bit more um, this year, just figuring out what is the way that we should handle God's word. Um, that's really important. Um, the Old Testament is is um, as much a an important part of the Christian book, the Bible, as the New Testament is. Sometimes as Christians we don't know what to do with the Old Testament. It's hard to know how to handle it and interact with it. 
to understand its relationship with the New Testament. It's difficult to understand um, in what ways is there <clears throat> continuity, no interruption between the Old Testament to the New Testament. Um, and it's very important to understand in the ways in which there is discontinuity between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And the way that we try to uh, summarize that is, is there are very Christ-centered <coughs> reasons that the Bible from the Old Testament to the New Testament is continuous, that there's, there's no interruption. Christ is at the center of that continuity. Um, but what we found out as we went through Leviticus 19 a few years ago, um, <coughs> there are very Christ-centered reasons for discontinuity. Um, Christ brought an end to some very important things that were going on in the Old Testament. In fact, if you're reading through the McShane's, you read, was it yesterday in Mark 7? Thus, he declared all foods clean. That's a problem in his day. Any man who would have stood up in his day and said, synagogue, all foods are clean. All it would have taken is one of the men to open up the scroll to Moses and say, you are a heretic. They would have grabbed him, they would have drug him outside the village, and they would have picked up rocks, and they would have buried him under the pile of rocks. The only one who can do that to an exalted moral regulatory force like the Mosaic Law is the one who is greater than. And he has come. And so there are things to be, uh, there's reason to step away from Mosaic Law. Christ-centered reasons for stepping away. Christ-exalting reasons. There, Christ is at the center of continuity, and then what, obviously what you've got to get at is, is in what ways is it continuous in Christ, in which ways is it discontinuous in Christ, and, we, and we'll, we'll talk through those kinds of things. And uh, Primarily the way that you discern that is by reading your Bible forward, not backwards. <coughs> Don't read things later back into things earlier. Let each passage stand on its own, with its own merit, to its own audience, with its own meaning, but keep going forward. You can't just read the Old Testament and never get to the New Testament. And this is what happens a lot of times as we, um, some guys will want to teach the Old Testament and, and the sermon will be an Old Testament sermon. But your sermon or your, or your lesson that you teach, it has to be a Christian lesson. It has to be a Christian sermon. And what I mean by that is it has to get to Christ. How you do that is everything. The ancient um, uh, guys, uh, the had had a hermeneutic in which the way in when in the if they were in the Old Testament the way that they got to Christ was if they saw anything red, blood. So Rahab hangs the cord out her window. It's red. And the early church fathers launched off from there into the cross. That is a very not good way to handle the Old Testament. Christ-centered approach, yes, but all in the wrong ways. That is not what was meant in Joshua at that audience, for that audience. You must let the message for that audience come out clearly. Otherwise, you're messing with God's word. And you don't like it when people take your words and read things into them that aren't there. So let's give God the same courtesy that we like to have and handle his words as they ought to be. Anyway, we'll talk a lot about that the last three times together. Um, 
Lastly, the vision and the purpose. You guys are serving and becoming a part of uh, Grace Bible Church here. And so these disciplines all need to be focused and applied at Grace Bible Church. Um, And we want to let you know what our vision and our purpose statement is, and you'll get that up on April 9th. So that's that. Any questions or comments, guys? Thoughts? Challenges? Your main homework, we give you homework every time, right, guys? Um, But your main homework, your primary homework, is you need to be men who just are reading the Bible. Read the Old Testament. Read the New Testament. Read the Bible every year. So I just want to encourage you, if you're falling behind, or if you're falling behind again for the 17th time, um, for the 18th time, just pick right back up. Whatever it says to read today, read that today. And... um, Get a long-range view in mind. I, I don't think that today you need to be everything and have to have read everything, caught yourself all the way back up, uh, you know, reading 20-plus chapters to get caught up because you haven't read very consistently. Now start today and think, I'm, I'm going to build my life to be a life of consistency so that within a matter of, of months, a year, whatever, I'm going to be a man who's in the Word every day, and I'm going to read through the Bible every year at least once. I know several guys who have been reading the Bible once and doing it realized that they wanted to read it even faster. And I know some guys who are reading the Bible a couple of times a year. Um, And uh, they also study the Bible at a separate time. And what they find is that they read it faster, um, where you don't have time to pause on every little thing. Um, They're finding that they're seeing things that they never saw when they paused on everything. So another thing to think about, guys, is you cannot pit reading against studying. They are two different animals, and they are both very necessary in the Christian life. And if you have been primarily a studier, somebody who pauses and you don't let anything slip by, and you just dig down deep into a passage, praise God, keep doing that. But if you're not reading where you're going faster, and you're not allowing yourself to pause as often, you're missing out on something and gaining something from God's word that you need to get. So your life needs to become a balance of both of those things. How do you do that? There's a, any number of ways you can do that. I mean, you can, you can uh, if you're a person that every day when you got up and that was like what you did for a, a block of time with study, well, you're probably going to need to um, not be able to do it exactly the same way, depending on how tight your life is and, and time. So what you might need to do is, is make sure that you spend time reading every day and then, but, or, or read four days out of the week, but try to, in those four days out of the week, read the whole week's worth of reading that you're supposed to do. And then on three days of the week or two days of the week or however many days, study on those days. Take your passage and dig down deep. Okay? So you can get creative. I mean, just figure out the way to do it that works for you and your life and your schedule and your time and and, uh, but, but try to work both of them in if you can. Okay? All right. 1 Timothy 3. Let's um, go ahead and get our Bibles open there. Find a spot. You can bookmark that for just a moment. 1 Timothy 3. And then um, I, I actually want to have you be back in um, Philippians 1 for just a moment. So be ready to go. Maybe put your paper in 1 Timothy 3 or something and, and then back at Philippians 1. And let's, um, let's make sure that we 
pray before we look at God's word and, and uh, soak it in this morning, okay? you pray with me? Heavenly Father, thank you for this, this great opportunity to be together again this morning. Lord, thank you for the work that Jesus Christ did to remove all that was offensive about us to you. Our sin had made a separation between us and you. We were children of wrath as the rest. There's no way that you would, that we could utter anything from our mouths that would be pleasing to you, that would be, that would draw your attention to us. You began to work on us. You began to make sin clear to us. You began to do powerful things in our hearts and we began to cry out to you and in your grace and your grace alone. You transformed us and you took away the offense. You satisfied your wrath. You carried away the guilt and the shame in your son. He bore it away in his body on the cross and we're so grateful. And it's on the basis of his work that now as children of a heavenly father that um, you hear us. And you long for us to come into your presence. You want us to commune with you in every moment of every part of the day. Um, like a child would who is walking through the day holding his father's hand. Pray Lord, that we would be that kind of men. That we would even be that way this morning as we look at your word. We want to be near to you. We, we want to draw near to these words to see you, to know you. We want this to therefore be a time of worship of you, not of ourselves. We want to express our dependence upon you as we are here. This is an expression of our need for you, our desire for you, and our love for you. So we pray, Lord, that you would help us to express all of that. Make your word clear to us this morning. Help us to understand the quality of life that you desire deacons to have. Lord, I pray for every single one of these men that they would, that you would work in their hearts in such a way, their lives, that they would be deacon qualified. We need you, and we ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Remember, Acts chapter 6, we talked about um, that passage as being really a, a, in the early church. The problem with the widows going on there. Um, the apostles are functioning as prototype elders. They're not called elders. They're apostles. But they're functioning as shepherds in a local church. A big one in Jerusalem. The trouble arises with the widows who are not being fed. Right? Um, the Greek widows. And so they decide that... The, the apostles decide they're not going to be the ones to, to fix what's wrong there. They're going to instead um, have the congregation help them select seven men. And um, those men in that passage are not called deacons. They have to serve tables, which is similar to that idea. But we say, we're saying that those are prototype deacons. It's early church. It's the way that they decided to structure their leadership, apostles, overseeing the, the work of the gospel in the church. There needed to be in their minds another layer of leadership under them that took care of needs like this so that the gospel in the church could continue to do all that it did. 
Now, fast forward, Paul is in prison, he writes Philippians. Paul and Timothy, chapter 1, verse 1, bond servants of Christ Jesus. To all the saints in Christ Jesus who are in Philippi, including the overseers and deacons. No longer prototypes, no longer prototypes, deacons no longer prototype elders. Real deacons and real elders in the church, along with the saints. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all, in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. Now, what I want to draw your attention to is in number one on your sheet, and you can turn back now to uh, 1 Timothy 3. We have to keep in mind the greater context in which deacons sit. Okay? Um, and here's the first blank to fill in there. The entire body of Christ is advancing the gospel mission of Jesus Christ. Okay? And if you want, you can take that little um, half sheet of, you know, the that says Monday at the top. You can take this and just pull that aside. Don't let that be in your way. We'll get to that at the end of our time. Um, the entire body of Christ in Acts was to be a part of helping the gospel go forward. The, the apostles were huge in that. They were functioning as missionaries within Jerusalem, helping the gospel to go forward. They were constantly speaking the word, preaching the word. They were getting beaten for it, and they continued to do it, right? The deacons we found, those prototype guys, they were doing the same thing. They were the same kind of men. They, In fact, by the end of Acts, one of them is no longer known as Philip, the guy who serves tables, but he's Philip the evangelist. And so deacons are concerned also about making sure the gospel goes forward. In fact, we talked about the fact that the Holy Spirit and the Word of God don't make any other kind of Christian than one who is concerned about the gospel, loves the gospel personally, loves to see the gospel be expanded to other people. Um, and what we find in Philippians 1 there is the exact same thing. Paul says, now, I'm writing to all you saints, including the overseers and the deacons, and you have been in uh, participation with me in the gospel. The church participates in the gospel going forward. And so you have to keep this in this greater context um, for, I don't think you should talk about elders. When would we want to talk about being Christians and not being concerned about the gospel? I can't think of a time. When would you want to talk about what it means to be an elder, but not talk about the gospel being go forward? Why would you want to talk about deacons without the gospel going forward? You see, all of these, this is just what who we are as the church. We're concerned about the gospel going forward. So, all disciples are committed to this personally, or committed to it corporately, elders and deacons alike. Um, the elders, the prototype elders in Acts 6 were very personally committed to this. They were leading the body forward. Elders today need to still be leading the body forward and considering how does the gospel need to go out. need to be equipping the, the saints for that work of the gospel as they go out. Deacons need to be a servant layer of leadership appointed by the elders to specific ministry needs, bringing the gospel to those ministry needs, and helping the church be functional still and not being taken off track and 
get a flat tire and have to pull over to the side and they can't go forward with the gospel because there's ministries that are a wreck or people groups within the church that are a wreck. Now they need to be gospel concerned also so the church can continue to do this. Um, and the thing that I have thought about and we've talked about in the past with this is and, it, and it's changed it as I was looking through my notes and, and the things I've talked for the last five years on this. <laughs> um, you wouldn't go to a church where there was only elders and deacons and there weren't, there wasn't a body. Right? I mean, that, doesn't, that doesn't even make sense. Right? You wouldn't go to a church where there were just saints and no elders or deacons. Right? So these, these pieces are, are all very much connected and they can't be separated. The interesting thing, though, is if there's one of them that appears to be negotiable, it would seem to be deacons, more so maybe than the others. How many times have you gone to a church where you didn't even see a deacon layer of leadership? And and what's changing in my mind now as I look out, and I don't you know I don't get to go to churches. Uh, obviously, I'm kind of stuck every Sunday, um, as much as you are. But um, I haven't been in. It's been seven years since I was in another church uh, consistently to be able to see what's going on. It, it appears to me now that maybe elders are negotiable. You have, you have a group of men who are leaders, the leadership team, it's the board. Uh, you might even call them elders. Whether or not they're functioning as elders, I don't know. But, but what I want to press for is that there's, in, in Paul's mind, um, he wrote letters to the saints, the elders, and the deacons. He has... Two lists. He has one long list here in, in 1 Timothy 3. It begins with the elders. It goes um, fluid-like into the deacons. Um, there's no... You, you can't negotiate... If you negotiate away the deacons, um, then you might as well look at the first part of the list in 1 Timothy 3 and negotiate away the elders. Because that's very arbitrary that you would say, well, deacons don't matter as much in the church um, when Paul doesn't give any kind of indication in the list that it's less important. Those people, those men are less important. So I want to make sure that we just see that there's a need for all three categories. You've got saints, and from the saints you have elders and deacons. And they are part of advancing the gospel of the church. So that's a little bit of review from last time. Let's talk about number two, the deacons. The importance of tested and approved character. What I want to do is I want to read verses 8 to 12 for you in 1 Timothy 3. And you can follow along. Deacons, likewise, must be men of dignity. Not double-tongued or addicted to much wine or fond of sordid gain. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience. These men must also first be tested, then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. And the NAS says, women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. Verse 12, deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their households. For those who have served well as deacons obtain for themselves a high standing and great confidence in the faith that is in Christ Jesus. Now, what you see in um, what we're going to look at here is verse 10 first before we really jump into verses 8 through 12 or 13. Um, but there's a spiritual grid here. That's what verses 8 through 13 are. It's a spiritual character grid that is being offered here by Paul through which you should look to evaluate a man. And the question I have for you is, is this a new idea 
based on what we saw last time in Acts 6. A spiritual character grid. Is this a new idea? It's kind of a trick question because you should be able to answer it yes and no. Um, let's talk about it being known. In what sense is this not a new idea? Uh, in Acts 6, if you remember, they um, had a, a, a grid, a character grid, through which they said evaluate these men. Pick seven men. They need to be men full of the Holy Spirit, full of faith. They need to be this, and they need to be that, and they need to be this. So in one sense, Paul's not doing anything different. There is still to be a spiritual evaluation, a character evaluation of these men. The way that it is different is that these qualities within this list are not exactly the same as the ones there. The church has been developing and grown, led by the apostles and the teaching, and the mystery of the gospel of the church has been revealed in the administration of the mystery. The ordering of the church by Paul has come about more clearly, and now this is, in a, in a degree, a little different looking than Acts 6, right? So you have this character grid that's going on here. Now, interestingly enough, what he says, what I want to focus on in verse 10, is very interesting. Uh, and you can fill in these two blanks there um, in your notes. This is the tested and approved character sandwich. That's what I want to call it. The tested and approved, under number two there, the tested and approved character sandwich of 310. Look at verse 10. These men must also first be tested. Look how it ends. If they are beyond reproach. What's in the middle? Let them serve as deacons. Now, where does that sit in the list of qualifications? Does it start off the list of qualifications? No, you might think that if you're going to have some type of a, a testing or approved statement like that, you might want to start it off with that. Does it occur at the end of the list? No, it's not a summary of the list of qualifications. Where is it? It's embedded right in the middle of the qualifications. And the question to ask yourself is why? Why would Paul do that? And we, we don't know. We can only conjecture. But when you embed something in the middle uh, like that, how easy is it to just separate it from the qualities around it? It's less difficult, or it's, it's, it's more difficult to separate it out. It has to be a stay right there in the middle. And so I think that's what Paul's doing is he says there needs to be a testing going on. There needs to be an approval of these men. And I don't want it separated from these qualities that we're looking at. Um, so what I want you to do, you see how on your paper you've got the two arrows that kind of one goes off at the top for first be tested. What I want to do is I want to talk about what it means to be tested. And you can kind of write up there what, what, what it means to be tested. And then underneath you can write about what it means to be beyond reproach. So let's talk about being tested, okay? Tested, the word there means to be tested like um, like metal, to show the genuine, genuineness of the metal. It's, it's the word you would use to refine uh, precious metals, gold or silver or something like that. And you would put it under great intense heat, that, that metal, and in doing so, the impurity, it would melt. And, and the, the impurities would come to the top. And then the uh, blacksmith would have some way of skimming off the dross at the top, the, the impurities, and he'd get them off the top. And he would continue to do that and continue to do that until as he looked down in the liquid, he would see what? He would see his own reflection. And he would know that uh, the impurities are gone. And the whole point of doing that, it was not because he was mad at the metal or that he wanted to punish the metal. 
because he wanted what was good in the metal. He wanted to, it to be shown to be genuinely what it was and to remove, remove impurities. The idea of being tested, we guys, we need to remember this. When, when there comes a refining in your life, um, it's, you should not automatically include equal, this equals God's judgment on me, his displeasure with me. I'm being punished somehow. Well, what if he's refining you? Which he is. Why? Because he wants to show forth what it is that is good that he has done in you. That he's working out in you and in me. So the whole idea is to test it so that it can pass the, the test. That's why God brings the heat on in our lives. is so that we can pass the test. Not so that we will fail. But so that he will, we will pass the test by his grace. What does it mean to be beyond reproach? In verse 10... Uh, that's the bottom part of the arrow. It means that you cannot be arraigned like as in a court of law. Uh, you are unblameable. No blame can be put on you. It, it just won't stick. People will throw a blame. You know, you, we can blame them for this. They throw it at you and it just falls to the ground. It doesn't stick. Beyond reproach. And then again, here's the sandwich. That's the way the verse starts off at the top. Tested. At the bottom, beyond reproach. So being refined so that everything comes forth as it should and you be seen to be what you are, beyond reproach, nothing sticks to you and what's in the middle of that, serve as a deacon. Serve. And it says in verse 10, they must also first be tested. Not second be tested, but first be tested. Right? And then let them serve as deacons if they are beyond reproach. So this idea in verse 10, it is not a probationary period. The idea, the, the wrong way to apply this would be to say in, in a church to a man, hey, why don't you try this office of deacon out? Let's, let's see how it goes. And then if it works out well for you, then we'll keep you in it. That's not what it says. Let them be tested first. Watch them. Be an observation of the life. And then, if he's beyond reproach, then let him serve. Okay? So there needs to be some type of, a, of an observation relationship that goes on that the elders of the church can observe in man. And um, we never did this thinking, hey, you know what? We need to be in an observation relationship with men. It just, God in his grace just allowed us to, to see that this is actually what is happening in things like Bill and in H3 and um, in men leading small groups and things like that where the elders are connected to them. We, we want to be as close to the men of the church as we possibly can as elders because we need to be watching them because where do you get tested? We, we don't have a deacon testing room. Where you outside that room, you're not being tested, but you come into this room, and that's where we test you. You're going to run into a whole battery of tests, and you have theological challenges, and you got a, you know, some conflict resolution. We don't have test like like that in a laboratory. Where do you get tested? In small group, as you are learning to implement these disciplines in your life and uh, of build and and as you're wrestling with theological and, and hermeneutical and exegetical kinds of things in H3 and. And um, we want elders close to the men watching, there to shepherd, to help, to provide counsel and encouragement and, and admonition where it's needed. 
So um, elders need to be in a close observation relationship with the men of the church. And I would, I would hope you would, if you end up staying at Grace Bible Church the rest of your life, praise God, that would be awesome. But if you don't, and God moves you on even to someplace else, I would hope one of the first things that you would look for and ask a question about is, elders, how are you watching the men of the church? And if they kind of, uh, well, uh, let me think about that. I don't really know. Well, well uh, if there's not an answer, then how are they observing what's going on? There has to be something. Listen for it. It might not be, it won't be expressed the way that we do it here, and that's not the point. But listen for how elders are observing lives of men, especially. That needs to be present going on um, in the church. Now, beyond reproach, I want to talk about this a little bit more. What does it mean to be beyond reproach? This is, this is the umbrella qualification, especially for elder. And I think it is for the deacon as well. It's not, it doesn't occur first in the list for deacons like it does for the elders down in chapter 3, verse 2. Uh, and it's actually a different word in verse 2 than it is in verse 10. But um, that means um, it's the main idea. And, and what it means to be above reproach or beyond the reproach that might reach out to get you, what it means is, well, you have these specific qualifications. What Paul means when he says elders must be above reproach as he says, well, let me spell that out for you, verse 2. What I mean by that is you need to be a husband of one wife. You need to be temperate, prudent, respectful, hospitable, able to teach, etc., etc., etc. Deacons likewise, verse 8. And let them serve if they are beyond reproach. It's kind of that umbrella qualification of a man's life that is fleshed out by the specifics of being a man of dignity, not double-tongued, addicted to much wine, etc. Okay? Now, the thing to keep in mind is that elders and deacons are not called to an above-reproach life, and the rest of us are not. And so what I want to show you is something very important that you need to understand. Okay, so what I want you to do is let's go back to Philippians 2. And I want to show you some important things here about all Christians are called to be blameless or above-reproach. Philippians... It'd be like somebody down below you trying to shoot at you accusations about your character. And they go flying up, but you know what? You're above it. They don't reach you because they're not true. Um, or beyond reproach. They're trying to get you with an accusation, but it falls short of you because you're beyond it. It doesn't mean perfection. It means that you are an exemplary model of holiness of life that other people should strive for. Um, and we'll see that here. Look at Philippians 2, verse 15. Verse 14, Do all things without grumbling or disputing so that you will prove yourselves to be blameless and innocent children of God above reproach. Two words in, this, in that one um, verse. And who is he writing this to? Is this to the elders? Or is it to the deacons? Or is it to the saints? Yes. <laughs> it's to the church. This is what the church must be. Blameless and above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. How about, let's go to 1 Thessalonians chapter 3. 1 Thessalonians 3 verse 13. 
Paul says in a kind of prayerful way in verses 11 to 13, he says, now in verse 11, Now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you. Um, and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people, just as we also do for you, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Emphasis on all Christians. Go back to Colossians 1, verse 21. Colossians 1, verse 21. And although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, yet he has now reconciled you in his fleshly body through death in order to present you before him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. Two words there again. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. And then again, that's being written to all Christians. First Corinthians chapter 1, verse 8. Verse 7 says, We're awaiting eagerly the revelation of our Lord Jesus Christ, who will also confirm you to the end, blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. The heart of God for all of his children is that they would be blameless. One more. Go back to 1 Timothy. Uh, 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 7. This is, this is interesting. 1 Timothy 5. This is the honoring widows part of Paul's instruction in 1 Timothy so he's talking about widows here. Um, verse 5, let's back up. Now she who is a widow indeed, and she's the one, not just any widow gets support from the church. She has to be a widow indeed. Okay, So she, this is the kind of woman that the church should take on and support. She who is a widow indeed and who has been left alone has fixed her hope on God and continues in entreaties and prayers night and day. But she who gives herself to wanton pleasure is dead even while she lives. Prescribe these things as well. Teach them, right? So that they, who's the they? The widows. So that they may be above reproach. So widows are to be above reproach in the church. All right, so in 1 Timothy chapter 3, verse 10... Deacons are to be beyond reproach. Elders in 1 Timothy chapter 3 verse 2 are called to be above reproach. And in Titus chapter 1 verse 6, they are to be beyond reproach. All right, so the scriptures teach the saints are above reproach, the deacons are above reproach, the elders are above reproach. And in fact, what I write these three down. Write down 1 Corinthians 1.8 in a separate spot. You may have already wrote some of these down, but I want you to put three together. 1 Corinthians 1.8. And I want you to put down 1 Timothy 3.10 and Titus 1.6. And the reason I want you to put those three verses together is that the same word for above reproach is in all three of those. And in 1 Corinthians 1, it's for the saints. And in Titus 3, it's for the deacons. And in Titus 1, it's for the elders. Okay? There's a family of words of beyond reproach and, and blameless, and, and, and there's like three different word families that, that occur from this, or that uh, represent this idea. But what I want you to show and see in those three is that's the same word, and it's used for all saints, for deacons, and for elders. So what does this mean? Do not allow yourself to think in a way that says, well, these guys need to be above reproach who are leading church and leading the ministries, but I don't have to be. 
No, you do. And that's the will of God for you and why he saved you, that you would be holy and blameless. Right? Um, so then in what sense are the deacons to meet that qualification? It means that those are the guys who will be the examples for the rest of what it means to be that. It's not that they are it and the rest aren't, but they need to be an example to the other blameless children of what it means to be blameless. Does that make sense? Derek? Um, I'm curious. So you can't you basically cannot be blamed or like have accusations of the stick or come forth. Um, I'm curious, like is that specifically speaking about like from within the church? Um, just to some extent we're always gonna have specific accusations, yeah. especially coming from without uh, without the church in the world. Yeah. Two things, and that helps us a good qualification. And by the way, I shouldn't even take your question because you have to be here like four times before you can ask <laughs> Why would I say that to a man who's so much bigger than me? I don't know. Um, qualification on this. Um, first, remember, uh, above reproach and beyond reproach here in, in these lists, are, are primarily spelled out by the, quali- the specific qualifications that are there. And so I think, in a sense, what Paul's saying then is if a guy is not above reproach, it would be in one of these specific ways listed here. Okay, so you, that's, that's where you would want to look. Um, another general qualification thing to keep in mind, this does not mean that, that you are sinless, obviously. Um, it's going to be an, an issue of unrepentance, perhaps, or just great weakness in an area where it's just not there yet. And therefore, you're not beyond reproach. If, if, if the reproaches keep sticking, you know, one might stick once, but if a guy goes, uh, and he repents, and he demonstrates himself to be not characterized by that fault, that sin, that deficiency, that's one thing. If it continues to stick, there's, there's not a confidence in the man's character. In regards to your other question about inside or outside the church, it's both um, because uh, you see in 1 Timothy 3, especially in regards to the elder, um, verse 7, 1 Timothy 3, 7, he must have a good reputation with those outside the church so that he will not fall into reproach and the snare of the devil. Um, that does not mean, that, that just means out there in the world, uh, if, a, if a, obviously what, what, what can't it mean? If, if you are a holy man in business and you will not cheat or lie on forms and the world does not like you for that and accuse and, and they blackball you and you don't have a good reputation within the company because you won't lie, um, I think you're doing exactly what verse 7 says. <laughs> verse 7 doesn't apply to that in a sense. But if, I mean, there's a general idea in, in an acceptance out there that if a, if a believer is caught lying at work, cheating, and the world sees it and has an issue with it, that's going to be a problem in the church for that man. Okay, so uh, it's both within and without the church. Okay, any questions? Yes, sir. Yeah, on the first Timothy passage, you said that it defines above approach as the characteristics that follow. Yeah, they help spell out what he means by above reproach. Right. And then in Philippians 2, it says that it's above reproach because they are doing all things without going disputing. So going back and looking at all the passages that talk about being above reproach, 
is that an aggregate of all, or is it for deacons? Here's the list. Now for that's that's good. Yeah, it, it, Paul is very specifically in deacon for deacons. Thinking above approach looks this way, has to be expressed this way. For children in general, children of God in general, doing all things without grumbling or disputing leads off so that you will be this. Um, uh, in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. So it's tied more specifically there with uh, those types of things. Um, yes, I mean, I think you want to look at it in every context and, and let each context uh, determine what is meant by beyond approach. So that's a, that's a, good, that's a good encouragement. Scott? It's important to see in the, the qualifications for elders, and one of them is that you're a peaceful man that relates to plural community. Yeah. Good. So all Christians are to have what the deacons and elders are to have at a, at a level, right? Nothing unique between them. We're all called to live above approach in the ways that God desires us to. Calvin has a great quote on understanding, verse 10. He says there, those chosen should not be unknown. That's the idea. First, let them be tested. And then, if they are beyond approach, let them serve. Their integrity should be ascertained by all. This means this choice is not to fall at random and without selection on any that come to hand or mine. But this selection is to fall on those men, uh, those men are to be chosen who are approved by their past life in such a manner that after what may be called full inquiry or testing, they are ascertained to be well qualified. So that's, 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 a, that's a good statement about what's going on. There. How does verse 6 tie into being above Not a new convert? Of First Timothy three, yeah, so that he will uh, not become conceited and fall into condemnation incurred by the devil. In terms of not being a recent convert, and, yeah. and how do you measure that? That's a great question. Um, very interesting to watch Paul in Acts on his missionary journey to go back through after he passes through once, and as he goes back through, uh, at the end of that first missionary journey, he appoints elders in every church. Those would be relatively new converts. Um, so, I think there's a degree, um, and don't pick up any rocks and throw them at me. Um, yeah, you can do it later if you all think I'm crazy. But I think there's a degree of relativity on this for churches. It depends on where the church is, the age of the church, the condition of the church, and I think um, what is not relative is the list of qualifications. Um, would an elder in, a, in the Midu tribe be an elder in any church here? Did you see yourself appointing a man, an elder in the church in Midu, who might not be an elder here? Yeah, I think her, one thing that comes to my mind is just the ability to read. Uh, interesting. I mean, that's a requirement. You know, in our that's a qualification. Yeah. But that's I interesting. They, it's good. I mean, they would be reading like this. But <coughs> Timothy has just now come to, uh, you know, I mean, that's how they would read. And I don't think that would fly here. So for other reasons as well. Yeah. 
Um, there are some churches where there's a maturity level of the church where an elder in one church might not be might not be even thought of as an elder in a church. Uh, a Grace Community Church in L.A. where MacArthur's been pastoring for 50, not 50 years, preaching for 40 years or however long it's been. And um, there's a degree of equipping and training in that church of men that a, a man and an elder out here might not be an elder there. Not because he doesn't meet the qualifications necessarily as a church that he is in has ascertained him by, but he just it just might not be the same. So I think there's a degree of, I want to say there's a degree of relativity somewhat. Um, it would seem like there, in terms of the refining, the testing, of whether they're above reproach, that there would have to be some sort of uh, t- time yeah. period. Yeah, I mean, you're, the, thing, the, the principle of, of verse 6 is you, you need to be really careful with people who have just come to Christ. What does that mean? How long? Well, consider that in your setting where you're at. Um, and is his newness in Christ um, going to be a snare uh, or a, a way for him to fall into condemnation? And so you need to be careful. The way that one church might um, discern that in him might not be exactly the way another church would discern the newness in Christ. Um, I, I don't know. Um, so there's a sense in which it has to stand as, a, as an unshifting qualification. And in another sense, I think there's a, a way in which it has to be, in each context, be determined what it looks like. Because one church may say, you know, he's only been a believer for five years. We don't, we, we, the men on our board have been believers for 25 years, minimum. Um, we, we might want to not and you know what I, I don't know if I would necessarily fault him for that I, I might ask questions that guy might be more spiritual in his life than some of the other men uh, a church that's been newly planted uh, a guy who's been, an el- who's been a believer for five years oh, he may be at the top of the list for elder um, you know obviously working through these other qualifications here Dave? I did something that just popped into my head when you talk about church planting, what's going around in my head is maybe we shouldn't be planting churches if we don't have qualified men to step in, as opposed to well, let's use recent conference so we can plant this church. Um, you know, maybe there shouldn't be a big rush to plant churches if we already know we got more ground of people. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. I mean, you want to. This, that's why. I mean, what makes a church strong, that uh, an existing church strong, is that the men are being developed and are, are growing and becoming godly men, so that they can lead well. Um, I think at some point, if you're, if a church is pouring itself into that, there's going to be, hopefully, a volcano that is about to blow, where you're going to have qualified men who are going to long desire the office, are going to long to shepherd, they're going to be demonstrating that they can shepherd. And you might find yourself ready to expand and, 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 and reproduce the church. Um, those are great questions. Yes? What is novice in the Greek? You know, I, I don't remember, and I, I you don't have a Greek here. So. It's neophyte. It it's probably be good. relative in the fact that, you know, age. Talking about a person, yeah. you know, that, and again, this would be relative. Yeah. Because Timothy was a young man. Yeah. But um, 
you know, maybe age is also something to be considered here. Mm-hmm. You know, when you have when you're looking at um, well, just age and yeah. more wisdom, and you know, just because it seems to. Be. That's a great. That's a that, that's a that's an excellent point to be thinking about. Um, we, I mean, we we have to wrestle with that here. We we have um, the church is almost ten years old. It'll be ten in April. And there have been some young men in this church since they were twenty. And for ten years, they've been really they've been very serious about their relationship with the Lord. They're thirty now. And I think we have some 30-year-olds who are elder qualified. I think we have some 27-year-olds who are elder qualified. Personally, when I look at the qualification in the list, I can't, I can't see something. That doesn't mean we declared them such. We might have men in their 40s at this church. And um, I don't see necessarily these things within their lives. So age doesn't mean, in that sense... Um, much. What is it that counts? What counts? In fact, um, the writer of Psalm 119, I'll see if I can find it for you. I, I think this is, this is really helpful. Psalm 119, verse 99. In fact, why don't you look that with me? Because I think this is this is helpful. The, the tendency can be to think that elder, the first thing that comes to your mind is what? Age. Because that's what we think of it. The elderly. Right? Uh, by Paul's time, at the New Testament time, elder didn't necessarily carry that weight anymore of being an older man. It meant a leader. In the among the synagogue or uh, the people, the, the village, whatever. Look what look what the writer of Psalm 119 says. Verse um, 99. I have more insight than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged. Why? Okay, so here's a guy who says I'm younger than these other people, but I understand more than them. Why? Because I have observed, I obey. What makes a man wise, discerning, qualified is not age, but obedience. Being obedient man to God's word and, and observing the precepts. I've restrained my feet from every evil way that I may keep your word. So he is saying, as a younger man, whatever age he was, I I, there's, a, there's a degree of understanding in me that these other guys don't have, and the difference is, is I'm observing God's words. So I think what's, what a church needs to really be looking at is, is um, not just if, if, a man, if a church decides, here's the grid at which we're going to look for men. Uh, hey, Cass, print off for me in the office the oldest guys down to the youngest, and we'll cut it off at, uh, let's say, 38, and we'll look at 38 and above. Oh, man. Obviously, that can't be what is meant by elder. Elder is meant by the qualifications that are here. And if he happens to be a younger man and the elders of the church feel confident to put him forward to an older church, the elders are going to need to shepherd the body. 
to me, it seems that's really important that the final judgment almost has to be with the elders that are already in place at that level. And there needs to be a very careful um, evaluation process. Um, and the, the men who are doing it need to be men who are themselves above reproach and, are, and the people have a trust relationship with them. And all of the, there's all kinds of other important factors that have to be a part of it so that when an older church puts forward, or a, a, an elder board puts forward a younger man in the church as an elder, we did this a couple of years ago with Jacob Hamilton. Uh, and we had questioned, uh, one, a couple people in the church had questioned about him, and we, we shepherded them through the process of why we did it. And they understood, and we didn't go forward until we were convinced that there was um, a satisfaction in the people's minds that Jacob was indeed uh, elder qualified. And their issue was not that he wasn't elder qualified, they were concerned that he was young. And so we talked through these very things with them, and they were like, oh, yeah, I think I was driven more by the idea that an elder just must be older. Not necessarily, you know. Is talking about a qualified man. Mark? Yeah, for, for someone who himself is struggling with the adoption of young elders, uh, to me it was, it, was, it was more, as you look at Paul's expression of his own life, it was uh, chief of sinners, uh, struggle, fighting. Regardless of how old they are, they're not ready. <laughs> right. They look at this list and say, I, I, I've never really struggled with gossip or wine or pride or sin Yeah. And, and that's what's challenging is, is if, if, you've, if you've seen a model where young men are put forward quickly to lead and, and things like that, you have to shepherd your own heart and mind in such a way that you don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Because there might actually be a condition in a setting in which young men may, might be, might be, um, you know, elder qualified. Um, so it's, it's a shepherding opportunity. Um, desire is a part of it, and we're we're on elder qualification. We're not talking about deacons anymore, but this is this is good. This is helpful. Desire is a part of it. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires. If a younger man is, God has been working in him in a way where he is qualified and God is putting an aspiration within him, a desire for shepherding and leading, but the church says, I'm sorry, you know, you may be 30, but you got to wait eight more years because 38 is the age. That guy's going to be frustrated. Because you've put an arbitrariness on what God can do when he does it. And so we would rather shepherd the body through a potentially challenging thing. And by the way, I mean, just so that you know, I mean, the elders' agenda at Grace Bible Church is not to go look for young men to be elders. The desire of the elders at Grace Bible Church is to go look for qualified men to be elders. And if he's young, we're going to... We're going to work through that. And we want to make sure that we have a process by which we're slow 
we're careful, and we communicate a lot with the body. And I think we have that built into what we do at Grace Bible Church. And um, it's a matter of just being really thoughtful about it and, and moving slow. We have a whole year internship before a man would ever even be considered and, and, and have hands laid on him as an elder. Um, he has to go through an exhaustive evaluation um, to fill out and do from doctrine to life, season of life. His wife has to be a part of it. He has to go through seven, because there's seven elders right now, he has to go through seven personal interviews with men. And then when that's all done, he has to then come before the body of elders and he and his wife and sit and talk. At that point, if the all seven men are in agreement, he is invited into a one-year internship. He's not declared an elder at that point. He's invited into a one-year internship where he sits with the elders in elder meetings and he begins to co-shepherd alongside them. He does not have a vote, but he can give input into discussion because we need to see and watch him work in eldering situations that come up. And at any point throughout that whole process, the man can say, I thought I knew what it meant to be an elder. I thought I wanted to be an elder. I've seen what you guys do, and I don't think that's me. And we would say, praise God. And we might, as elders, say, we thought you were, and but we think it's just not the right time for you. And um, we would say, praise God for that, too. At the end of that year internship, we then, if the elders are convinced that we might say, you know what, you need three more months. We want to see three more months of you specifically working on this. And so we might extend it to 15 months. Whenever we get to the end of it, we get to the end of it and we then go to the body and we say, we want to put forward this elder intern to you as um, full-fledged elder. You now have a month to go to the man personally and offer him encouragement or speak to him about areas of concern where you might see an area of concern in his life, you can come talk to the elders about the man. Now, hopefully at that point, anything that has been a potential issue has already been addressed over the course of a year. So we're trying to put forward a process that's slow and careful that already when we put forward a man, we're, we're pretty sure we want to put, I mean, we're, we're sure we could be sure. We've served with him for a year. Um, and we want to put him before you. But we're not God, and we can't see everything. And we don't know everything, and we rely on the body of Christ to have input as well. And so we don't want to make a decision without the body's input as well. And the body has to rely on the elders at some point to be making the right, right. decision. And there just has to be a good relationship between elders and the people. There has to be. Otherwise, it doesn't matter how good your process is. If there's not a degree of trust, it, 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 it's really difficult. So... I can't help but think what Dave said, though, about the church planning, because there's such a culture right now, a movement where within, uh, here at least in the United States with Christianity, where everything is about church planning. And the guys who are primarily doing it are are young men. Yeah. And we should be, based on what we've talked about, what should be our response to that? Let's, let's, what should we, what should we avoid? Say what? Skepticism. Yeah, just immediately, obviously skeptical. Okay, in in the sense of, well, nobody should be planning a church with a young man. But what should our response be? I pray to God that they are qualified men. And making sure that before doing that, that they are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that may, at the end of the day, make you very concerned. 
but you should be concerned for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. Not a reflex, gut reflex, reactionary reason. Okay. Um, let's, let's move on and let's talk about the, the qualifications. These will go pretty quick here. Dignity, verse 8 of 1 Timothy 3. Deacons likewise must be men of dignity. Here's your blank to fill in. A serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. A serious bearing in life because of a serious mind and character. Seriousness of mind, it's, it's an inward thing that leads to an outward character quality that's measurable in people. Where they would say, that, that guys he's a serious man. He's dignified. There's, there's a dignity about him. There's a weightiness about who he is. It's observable, and it's, it's a dignity. There, there's something winsome in that word, right? Dignified. It's not like... Um, uh, the difference between being dignified and just being serious. Okay, um, there's a winsomeness about his seriousness, about his um, his weightiness that he has, his dignity. There's something winsome about it. Uh, it's not overbearing his seriousness. It's not. It doesn't alienate people. His seriousness. No, but a man of dignity is a is a draw to others. And that's what the deacon must be. He needs to be engaging in that sense, appealing, winsome. But it, it, it's, it's, it, there's a respect. The way that he is, it causes people to respect him and want to come near to him. It's <coughs> dignity. What would be the opposite? The opposite of, of dignity would be silly, flippant. Um, somebody who makes light of serious matters can take anything serious and turn it into a joke. Okay. It doesn't mean that the person is joyless. <coughs> Dignity walking around stern all the time. This is my huge temptation. Um, which is why I love to be around my friend Josh Kelso because I know nobody more joyful than Josh Kelso and more dignified. Um, and he's pretty funny too. So. Um, so the question that I would ask you as you think about your own life is, do you see this qualification shaping your conversations? What are your conversations like? Is there a, is there a dignity to them? Is there a seriousness to them? What about your, your prayers, your thought life? Are you, are you, are you thinking serious things, but in a dignified way? Um, not double-tongued. Verse 8, deacons likewise must be men of dignity, not double-tongued. Literally, the Greek word has the, the prefix to on the front of it and word on the end. Two words. Or double tongue. That's where we get double tongue. One tongue that says this word and one tongue that says that word. Can't be that kind of man. The deacon. Um, it might be the idea of being a, not being a talebearer or a gossip. But I think the, the more the idea is, is, is there has to be consistency in what the man says. Consistency in what he says. Now remember um, the example in Acts 6 of the guys, um, the, the seven men that were picked moved between two audiences, apostles and the widows they were serving. Okay, can you imagine the earful those guys got when they went to those widows and they started meet, meeting with the people? I mean, there would have been all kind. I mean, it was a complaint arose in the church. I mean, it would have been a, and then they would first remember they, they were with the elders and they, they would have or the apostles and they would have gotten an earful from the apostles. Here's what you do, 
And so the deacons are constantly moving back and forth between two people, two groups, the people they're ministering to, and they are serving the will of the elders in that. You cannot have one tongue for this group and another tongue for the elders. There needs to be, a deacon needs to be a man who has, he's only got one tongue, he's only got one word. What he says and how he says it to the people that he's serving is what he represents to the elders, and what he says to the elders is represented when he is with the people. And here's where I find the big temptation in my own life. And you guys can decide if you wrestle with this also. Um, let's say for you something happens at work, some type of a, an injustice towards you, and because you're in front of people and everybody knows you're the Christian, you, um, you okay, you, you, you swallow a lot of what's on your mind. You don't say everything necessarily that comes out of your mouth or in your mind, and you, you say and and you speak a certain way in the office or at work or whatever. When you get home, yeah, <laughs> I can't believe you won't believe, honey, what happened today. This this guys are this is a joke. I think that's an example of two tongues. And what I want to strive for is to be a man that, oh, wait a minute, you know, there's really not two audiences that I'm standing for. There's only one audience. God is in my workplace, and God is with my home and my family. Okay, so an injustice is happening to me. God, I need to speak in a way where I'm, I'm most thoughtful of you and what you would want to hear from me. As I speak to these people, and when I come home, God, I want to be able to say the same thing. Now, you may be able to say more to your wife that you wouldn't. That doesn't mean you say everything exactly, you know, all of the content. Uh, but it means that the manner in which you do it is needs to be thoughtful. Yeah, does it make sense? That program we could have. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. be, there's nobody qualified to teach that. Um, yeah. And yeah, you want to do that to protect your wife. Yeah, you do that to. Yeah. 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 I I I try to be very careful as an elder what my wife knows and and because there can be sometimes you know things that are just really. Um, as an elder, you, you, you might see something beginning that looks like it might be unfolding in a way that would be really bad, and so you watch carefully. Um, and it might end up turning out in a, an amazing, wonderful, Christ-honoring way. And as an elder, you get your part of your burden of shepherding is you you go on the roller coaster ride of oh my goodness to praise God. But I don't want my wife going to church and looking across the room and going, oh, before she needs to. You know, you guys, and you guys with your work and your situations need to be thoughtful as well. So, not double-tongued. Sincerity with your words. Um, question for you, does the content of your speech or your portrayal of what happened change as your audience changes? Just be watching for that. Um, next qualification, verse 8. Oh, I didn't give it to you. I'm so sorry. Oh, as the notes are compared on the man's words, discrepancies don't become apparent. Discrepancies. I'm sorry, guys. Discrepancies. 
If you need help spelling it, find the smart guy at your table. <laughs> Next one, not addicted to much wine, verse 8. Not addicted to much wine. Here's your blank to fill in. A repeated habitual turning of thought to or use of alcohol. Of alcohol. I, I would broaden it beyond wine to alcohol because I think that's what Paul meant. Is wine was the way of saying the stuff we drink has got alcohol in uh, there was strong drink also as a separate thing, but I think we can apply it to alcohol. Now, why do I say a repeated habitual action? Because the verb that's being used here by Paul is in the present tense, so it's continual. It's a continual, ever ongoing uh, turning to um, alcohol or to wine. And why do I say in turning of thought or um, to use of alcohol? Because of the way Paul has it structured grammatically, um, it's, I could tell you exactly what it is, but it's not the point. The point is the way that he used the grammar is that it, it's a thought process that he has in mind with the verb and the datum that he uses. It means that there's, a, there's something internal first in his mind that's going on in regards to it. Um, in other words, it means his thought is influenced by much wine. Now, that could mean, obviously, the effect of alcohol on the mind. It influences the mind. But I think it's also even more than that. Um, it's a person. Here's the way that I, I, I've come to understand this and explain it. I think it's a person who has become occupied with alcohol's presence in his life. That's addicted to much wine. Preoccupied with alcohol's presence in his life. In other words, there's a sense in which alcohol becomes kind of the center of gravity, that whatever, wherever the man's at, he, he's trying to, he's got thoughts of, it, it comes back to the next time I can, or maybe, is this a situation which would be appropriate to maybe order, you know, get a beer with the guys? Or, and it's just constantly falling toward his thoughts, whatever's going on, run towards, fall towards alcohol, the influence of it. So you can be under the influence of it that sense, without even being intoxicated yet, but man, you're just looking forward to that. It's on your mind, being influenced by it. Um, now, over the years as we've talked about this, I've had guys say to me, well, you know, uh, you, you shouldn't be addicted to much coffee either. And uh, I rebuked him thoroughly. <laughs> 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 you were all like holding your breath like, <laughs> what do you say? <laughs> Here, here's the way that we've kind of worked through this and talked about this. Look at the phrase, not addicted, too much wine. Let's, let's break those two things down um, and, and consider it. Wine, whatever you put over here, not addicted to, fill in the blank. In, in one sense, wine could be substituted out by really almost anything else. Uh, look, prescription drugs, just drugs in general, nicotine, and then let's, let's keep descending down the list to things that are far less important. Caffeine, um, I'm joking, someone. <laughs> Sugar, okay, whatever. In one sense, not addicted to, in one sense you could take that out and you could really supply anything. And, and, and what would be your point in that? You'd be, you'd be putting the emphasis on being not addicted. 
what man do you want leading anything who's got um, who's easily enslaved by something? Wouldn't that fall more into idolatry? Yeah, I think so. But the but the idea here is yeah, I think so. I wouldn't I wouldn't separate it out as something different. Um, but in, in regards to the specifics here of a, of a qualification being used as um, addicted to, um, continual falling in thought to that, it, it's, uh, he doesn't use the word idolatry here, but it's not unrelated to it for sure. It do, do you think you could replace wine or alcohol with Something else? Sugar? Um, in one sense, theoretically speaking, I would say any man who is addicted to fill in the blank, need, should evaluate his life and should be careful because his life, he has been mastered by something. But that would be idolatry. Well, to I, me, this it could seems be. like it's more like that because this, the, I would go with like uh, prescription drugs or something like that because it seems like it's more Oh, and of an addictive nature. Yeah, I understand that. I'm not sure that's what, um, the, the, the nature of this discussion at this point is is broader probably than what this is. And, and, I'm, and I'm, the reason I'm sharing it with you is because this is the result of prior years of having this conversation with other guys. So um, I, I'm not going to disagree with you at all on, on the idolatry. Thing. It could be very much that it might be related to that. I might be crossing the line over into idolatry without even having really thought that. So that, that, that's a good point. But um, the, the, the point is, is if, you're, if your thought life is constantly gravitating towards something and you're looking how you can work in the next whatever it is that you've loved to have and your thoughts just fall to it all the time I think that's something to evaluate now you would be talking about sports at all <laughs> of course not <laughs> Dave and by the way this is half of the point I've got the other half coming up so I'm going to take questions but there's another half yeah, you might be touching on it but, I mean, um, when we start talking about addictions or, I just keep thinking about self No, that, that's good. On the other side, if I can complete the thought, and that, that leads me right into that. Remember I asked you, not addicted to is one part, much wine. So you can take the wine out in one sense, think about whatever it is. The emphasis then is on not being addicted, not being somebody who's going to be easily enslaved to anything else. Now let's leave wine and, and take out the other part. Why does it matter that, that he says much wine? Because of what you just said, the intoxicating effects of alcohol. What affects your judgment? Look, I don't care. In this sense, I'm going to undo everything I just said. I don't care what you say about caffeine. You might get a headache if you change your intake. You might be a little more jittery with it, but the effects of it on your mind does not compare to being intoxicated. You tell me, which man do you want making a ministry decision? A guy who's had four cups of coffee or who just drank four beers at lunch? Okay? There's a difference. Paul says wine for a reason. Okay? And, and they need to be careful. You have to be thoughtful. Can't be addicted to much. Yeah. 
Um, there's parts of the Bible describe being drunk and separating your heart and your mind. This idea that you can't mm. truly focus on God at that point. But aren't there also other activities that, in your own heart, the very act of doing it is an escapism or a way to yeah. essentially no longer focus? Sure. I mean, there, there could easily be... I mean, look, just wrong thinking in general can be devastating to you. Um, Paul, Paul is thinking specifically here of a, of, an, of a specific object that has a unique influence on the mind in a way uh, that a lot of other substances don't. Um, and so he is saying here, can't be addicted to much wine. Um, so the, the, the point here, I think, guys, is, is uh, and obviously he's not saying uh, alcohol is sin. He's not saying that. But what he is saying is, is the man needs to be evaluated in regards to his use of alcohol. And so the question to ask you that I would ask me is, when was the last time you evaluated your use of alcohol? If it hasn't been something that you've evaluated because, and look, guys, I would, I would, I would really strongly encourage you, if your primary <coughs> justification for drinking is, well, the Bible doesn't say I can't, you need to reevaluate why you're doing it. Because that's not why we do anything. We do what we do to the glory of God. And so, you're going to put a beer in front of you. You should only put a beer in front of you. Wine in front of you. Whatever it is in front of you, you're going to put in front of you. You're going to do. I'm going to do this, and I'm going to glorify God in the way I do it. And you can. You just can't be addicted to much wine. So, if you haven't evaluated your use of alcohol for a while, guys, I would encourage you just to do that. Okay. Um, you're not being exhorted here to do anything other than that. And if you want to talk to an elder about your use of alcohol, please do. We'd love to chat with you, okay? Not fond of sordid gain, verse 8. Not fond of sordid gain. Loving the gain of wealth in such a way that causes my character to be questioned. There's the blank. Causing my character to be questioned. You can love the gain of wealth in such a way... That would cause your character to be questioned. That's sordid gain. It's material gain, monetary gain, from a questionable motive. Dishonest gain. So in other words, what Paul's saying here as a deacon is, um, you might be in a situation where you're going to have to deal with finances, resources, and you're going to need to be careful. You don't want to turn those opportunities bound up in the office into a means of personal profit, like Judas. Okay? He handled the money box, and he used to pilfer it. Um, Now, think back on Acts 6, feeding widows. Most likely, that probably involved the oversight of some funds and or resources. Now, can you imagine the impact that would have happened in the first church, the early church there? You already have the complaint. You have a a potential ethnic uh, injustice going on, a racial issue going on in the church. Can you imagine if the men or a man trying to help in that also at the time was um, taking money for himself? Can you imagine how that would have compounded the problem? Okay. 
So in the church today, people who are given responsibility to lead ministries oftentimes are given responsibilities to make decisions about purchases. We, we, we have purchases and we have reimbursements and uh, all kinds of things like that. And look, nobody's going to get rich off of that kind of thing, especially at Grace Bible Church. But something goes funny in, in a guy's mind who hasn't been shepherding his heart that there's an opportunity to gain in a way that would cause people, if I do it, to question my character. And so this is where you want to be really careful with how, you know, this is what Paul's saying. Be thoughtful about the guy's handling of money. Um, it's very important to do that because it could just compound to the problem, uh, to the whole problem there. So a question for you in regards to your own evaluation is, is how much attention are you giving to your spending habits in the little things? Start, start with the little things and then work towards the bigger things. Um, think through why it's important to start with those little things. If you can nip something in the bud in little ways, you can save yourself a lot of heartache before it grows because sin never stays self-contained. You cannot have a little small little thing you do over here build a little fence for it in a nice little part of the yard of your life and say, now stay there. Sin will not act that way. It'll, it'll deceive you and say, okay. And you walk away. And before you even walked away and realized that it took the key out of your pocket and it has the door open. So evaluating the little things. Is there, is there a difference between sort of being what he says about elders not being lovers of money yeah, it's two different words, but um, and two different ideas, not greatly apart. Yeah, loving money in a way that makes somebody question your qualification, your character. Because you can earn money in a lot of ways that is legal, right? And honest, honest, but has the wrong heart. Right. It. You you can you can want to gain wealth and money in a way that is honoring to Christ. You can. And he's saying, that's not what I'm talking about here. I'm talking about a, a, a gain of money that is dishonest, that is sordid, that would cause somebody to question your character why you did it. So you need to be thoughtful about that. Yo. What about working for, there's a guy in my church who used to work for Cinemax. Um, yeah. They produce some pretty sketchy stuff. So maybe just another tangent on the next question. What defines sordid gain as what you're doing? Um, there, there would I would think there would certainly be places, um, w ways of making a living that if a if a let's say a, a guy comes to Christ, he might want to evaluate what he's been doing because it may be difficult for him now as he follows Christ to justify making a living that way. There are certainly arenas of uh, work and employment that are that way. Um, let, let's let's temper that and think about it more. Let's say, let's say a banker is a pagan, and God saves him. But for him, banking the way that he did was such a uh, it dominated him so much that he's like, I I need to get out of this profession. Why? Because the profession is evil, or because the way that he was so enslaved to it, he wants to distance himself from it. Okay, so 
what I want to say, I don't want to make a list of here are the questionable practices and ways of making money. And therefore, if you're going to become a Christian, you can't do any of those. Um, and at the same time, I want to say there might be some very acceptable things that men would do that they might actually choose with a, with a, a conscience before God that I, 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 I will not keep doing what I was doing because I just can't. I can't. I shouldn't. Um, interesting thing that made me think of something here. Um, Luke chapter... You don't have to turn there. Just hang on here. John the Baptist, the crowds, this is Luke 3, verse 10. The crowds were questioning him, saying, then what shall we do? He says, repent, you know. Uh, the axe is already laid at the root of the trees. When you put the axe down at the root of the trees, you're taking aim. There's only one thing left to do at that point. Bring it back and hope you hit right where you laid the axe. And they say, what do we do? And he would answer them and say, the man who has two tunics is to share with him who has none, and he who has food to do likewise. Well, some of the tax collectors, <gasps> tax collectors, oh, wicked, evil tax collectors, are wanting to repent. What should we do? They came to be baptized. Teacher, what shall we do? John said, leave that profession. Collect no more than what you have been ordered to. Some soldiers were questioning him. And you know what the, the soldiers did. They, they could stop you anytime on the place and say, uh, what you got in the money bag? Your horse? You know what? That's a good looking horse. A Roman would look good on a horse like that. Give me your horse. Some soldiers were questioning him saying, what about us? What shall we do? He said, do not take money from anyone by force or accuse anyone falsely and be content with your wages. He didn't say leave. Yeah. Now that doesn't mean that there are not some professions prostitution in which somebody should leave. Okay? But I, I think they're, they're, we need to be careful with how the gospel would make somebody change their thinking about how the, about the profession. Enough said. Scott? Yep. Take a stab at that. Um, Please. I, I believe in talk that if there's something in your life that causes a distraction, um, for instance, if I have lunch yesterday and I Paul Scott Maxwell sitting somewhere with four empty beers or something. If you weren't drunk, you weren't intoxicated, you know what? It would affect my being able to listen to you this morning. You weren't supposed to tell you that. You know what? I mean, your appearance, if it's a distraction, um, I've uh, been involved in a ministry that if you were obese, not that you weren't heavy, but if, you know what? If you were addicted to food, if you were obese, and they would just rather you not, not that you're not saved, not that God doesn't love you, but it's just a distraction. So if you can't share the gospel with someone without distracting yeah. that person in some way, then you need to deal with what it is. Yeah. I mean, that's what I see in all the qualifications for elders and teachers. There's a, you know, those are, those are some good thoughts just to, to think through and it requires a, a body of people to be very gracious with one another and to believe the best in people before making judgments and asking questions and all that good stuff. Um, so, yeah, no, that, that, that's good. Let's go on. Holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, verse 9. But holding to the mystery of the faith with a clear conscience, here's what the blank you can fill in. An ever-present grasp on what is believed which causes the conscience to affirm, to affirm 
not condemn the man or his ministry. Now, that's a word for it, but let me explain to you. What do I mean by ever-present grasp? Verse 9, holding. Holding. It's in the present tense. It means keep holding on to. Continually hold on to. Why do I say what is believed? Verse 9, the mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith. The mystery of the faith is, is, again, when Paul uses the word mystery in the New Testament, it doesn't mean something incomprehensible that is presently not known, but it means that it was a truth before that was unknown, but now has been revealed, and Paul is making it known, but he still calls it what it once was, the mystery. Okay? And what is it? It is the mystery of the faith. What is this? It is not the mystery of trusting in God, that's never been a mystery. Okay? It's not the mystery of trusting in God, the act of putting your faith in God. It is the mystery of the body of faith that you believe in, the content you believe. That's why I say it is con- the ever-present grasp on what is believed. And Paul doesn't come right out here and say what it is that is believed is to be believed. I don't think it's the gospel. Because I don't think the gospel was actually not known before. Because Paul preached the gospel. Jesus preached himself from the scriptures. The only Bible they could use to preach the gospel when they got started was not a mystery. A substitute in the place of those who would worship bloodshed. Uh, He was Messiah. Okay? So I think it probably, in in, in a context like this, with Paul instructing Timothy in regards to the church, I think it probably bleeds over into the body of truth that you believe concerning also the church and how the church is to be worked out. He says in verse 15, just a few verses later, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and support of the truth. Um, He's he's talking about... um, church-like things that are a part of that, and so I think it is a, um, a uh, ever-present grasp on what is believed, and he has to do it with a clear conscience, verse 9. That means his conscience needs to affirm him in the way that he continually holds on to what he believes. Okay? Um, Scott, the NIV says, uh, hold, keep hold of the deep truths of the faith. The deep truths. Okay. things that would have been needed to be revealed about the faith um, that weren't revealed before but now are revealed about the faith and what are those kinds of things well it'd be certainly uh, the name Jesus in regards to Messiah Jesus of Nazareth it would be uh, also would include things like that the church is formed out of the preaching of the gospel nobody saw that coming. Um, those kinds of things in the way that they would uh, and so if, you, if they want to refer to that as deeper things that maybe wouldn't have been known, I think that's good. I can go there. Um, your conscience is, is that thing about you that God created you with that when you feed it properly it, uh, and it, it is operating as it should be, it um, is well equipped to affirm you or to condemn you for what you have done. And this is why it's so important to... Um, Feed your conscience well. You feed your conscience with the truth of God's word. Because then it is, it's like a clear window then. I think it's the way that MacArthur describes it. it it's a clear window through which um, uh, 
truth comes through and into your life and can speak what it needs to speak to you. If the window gets foggy and fuzzy and clouded and truth cannot come through and penetrate into you, you will not be guided the same way. So you have to have a clear conscience, um, a well-informed conscience. Um, so the question to ask you guys is, what, what role does the Word of God play in your life? And do you have a clear conscience about the way that you even approach God's Word, which contains the mystery of the faith? Do you have a clear conscience about the way your motive that you have in coming to God's Word? Do you have a clear conscience about the way, uh, the frequency with which you come to God's Word? Do you have a, a clear conscience about the level of doing that results from um, your being in God's Word? You want to have a clear conscience about the way that you are continually holding on to the faith, the teaching of the New Testament church. Um, that deacon needs to have a conviction about that to be able to do that. Let's do um, two. We're going to drop down to verse 12, and then we're going to take a quick break. Um, because we're, we've got the, the, the verse 11 that's kind of stuck right in the min, middle of there. But let's continue on down to verse 12 for a moment. Deacons must be husbands of only one wife. Your blank for that is a one-woman man, a one-woman man. This is very similar to what you see up in chapter 3, verse 2. The husband of one wife, verse 12, must be husbands of one wife. This is not a marriage qualification that a man cannot serve as an elder or a deacon unless he is married to one woman. Uh, it, it, is, it is more than that. It, it is an inward thing. It is a spiritual thing. Because certainly a man could be married and not be qualified at all in this. Okay? What is the idea of a one-woman man? Um, it is more than just remaining sexually pure indeed in a marriage. Okay? Because a man can be married to only one woman um, and yet not be truly a one-woman man. It means that the man... Uh, can't have his thoughts and his life, uh, his attitudes and his desires drifting off constantly to other women. Um, that's not a man that you would, a man who is that way, you would not want leading anybody. It needs to be a man who is striving to bring his, his thoughts and his attitudes and his desires and his affections into line with God's word and funneled right towards one woman and that one woman happens to be his wife if he's married if he is not married um, he is doing everything he can to rein in his thoughts and his desires and his affections for a woman he's, he's keeping them very well protected and he'll, he'll have those affections and those desires and those wants someday and when God reveals that woman to him, he will direct them towards her. But he, if he now as a single man lives in such a way that he lets his affections run rampant for men or for women uh, all over the map, whoever he sees, there is no encouragement for that man that when the one woman comes, all of a sudden he will be different. And you and I all know this, don't we? Because if you're like me, you wish you would have fought a lot harder when you were, when you were single. Um, it is, a, it is an ever-present battle to keep your thoughts and your affections and your desires uh, for your wife and your wife alone. Watch your eyes. 
watch is there sometimes when you're when you're out in the world and you're working or wherever you are, there's sometimes you, the first glance is is unavoidable. It's the second one that's scary. Okay, watch watch yourself. Work on those things. Ask for help. Fight it with the gospel. Um, restrain your affections for only one woman. Um, marriage is good. And your wife is better than you deserve if you have one. Amen. And if you don't have one, you can still be a deacon. And you can still be an elder, I think. Um, I don't think that's what the point of the passage is. Good managers of their children and their own household. Question? I'll let you know there's another position out there. Um, uh, great, respectful man believes that what Paul was trying to say was um, could not be a polygamist. Uh, that would have been something in their day that they would have dealt with, and that's something in tribal settings uh, in which you uh, deal with that. Um, men having more than one wife. Oh, that reminds me. Who, who was I with? We were talking about that. Oh, it was Jacob. Jacob, his um, father-in-law was a missionary among the Huichol uh, people in Mexico, in the mountains, um, a tribal people, an Indian uh, people, and they, the men had multiple wives there. And I asked them, I said, well, how did they handle this qualification? Because the elders were just talking about this qualification last Sunday. And um, he had just a fascinating answer. I'll encourage you. He goes, you guys go ask him sometime what he said because we won't take the time now. Or you can ask Joey what they're doing as they're looking to appoint elders. And We encourage our guys to sell off all their wives. <laughs> <laughs> On second thought, <laughs> stay away from Joey. <laughs> Uh, those are important things to think about and, and uh, that you and I living where we live, uh, we, we fight this at a different level in a different way than uh, they do in other settings and parts of the world. Good managers of their children in their own households, verse 12. Good managers of their children in their own households provides direct and ongoing oversight of children in household affairs. Oversight is the word you're looking to fill in the blank there. Um, the better way, I think, to translate this is good managing. Good managing, verse 12. Good managing of children and household. Managing well. Um, provides direct and ongoing. Why would we say ongoing oversight? Because it's a present tense verb, again. It's continually going on. Why do we say direct oversight? Because of the, 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 the verb that is used has a preposition on the front of it that means before. Standing before. It's, it's two ideas. It's standing and before. Meaning that the, the, the father, the man, is standing before his household. He's doing it continually. He's standing before his household. And you know what? Not only is he doing it continually, he's doing it well. Doing it good. Bad English, but it's the way that they would say it in the Greek. Good standing before his household, his children, his household. Okay. Um, and again, I don't. Uh, the idea. What's the opposite? It's not a man who's ruling his household from afar. He's over here busy doing. Oh yeah, 
hey, honey, get that, fix that. And he's, but he's over here. No, he's there. He's present continually before his children in his household, watching it. He's more, more just present, leading. I mean, he's there. He's present there. He, he's not. He's not a distant husband. He's not a distant father. He's not a distant um, part of it. He, he's overseeing what's going on. Um, that doesn't mean that he has to make every single decision, obviously. But it means that whatever is going on, he's. It didn't happen without him, for the most part, knowing it or giving um, a responsibility to someone else to carry it out for him and to trust them. Um, again, I don't think this means that the man has to be a, a married man, nor does it mean he has to be a, a man with children uh, in order to be a deacon. And same thing with the, with the elders over in chapter 3, verse Four, he must be one who manages his own household well, keeping his children under control with all dignity. But if a man does not know how to manage his own household, how will he take care of the church of God? Paul's point in the elders, and I think that the same idea would apply over here to the deacons, is, um, is, is the argument from the smaller to the greater. If a man has a, a, a household, let's say a few souls in which he is overseeing, if he is standing over it and he cannot do it well, why would you ask that man to then stand over others beyond that in a larger sense? You wouldn't want to do that. Um, so there needs to be a um, faithfulness in the smaller things, a smaller number, a smaller sphere of shepherding and oversight and influence before you give it the man a broader one. So the question for you guys is how connected are you to the guidance over your children? And over the affairs of your house, um, you could be present in your house, but that doesn't mean you're standing over it well. You can be there, but that doesn't mean you're doing it well. Um, hopefully you're asking your wife how it's going, um, getting some input from others. What do you do? Let me ask you this. Uh, husband and wife, no kids yet. Husband becomes a deacon. Um, two years later has a child. What do you do? How do you know if he's standing over his... How do you know if he's going to stand over his children? An elder. Elder is... is um, single, or not a single guy, but a married man um, and does, becomes an elder and doesn't have any kids. A few years later has kids. What do you do? You have to be in their life to, to watch them, be close enough to to help them to, to shepherd. I mean, elders can shepherd each other. Yeah. Dave? Scott, I think if uh, you and your elders were to do your job properly, you wouldn't, I don't think uh, if you had an elder that got married, and, um, I mean, you don't check out, but you would not be be the last thing that he's thinking, okay, this guy's going to be a horrible dad. He's, he's not going to lead his family. And that would be something that he would, I would, I would hope, would discuss before he even got there. Yeah. And if he obviously, like, like Alex just said, you work together, you shepherd one another. He's already leading people in the church. Um, you know, I, I would think it would be something that he would, he would expect. What about what about the guy who says, um, well, if he doesn't have kids, we, we, it's not wise to have him be an elder. 
until he has kids because you know you don't know how he's going to do with kids and so what you're going to put him over the church and he he hasn't had kids yet I mean you're going to that's what you're going to do huh what would you say Mark I wouldn't, uh, wouldn't look at this qualification as different from the others uh, if you had if all of a sudden Scott Demarest becomes double tongue Any one of these you could fall in just in adding them. Yeah, that's good. Tom. Um, I, uh, I guess when you went over the age thing, I somewhat disagree with what I heard. Okay. And, and most of the time, Tom, hopefully most of the time, Tom, you would, you would find yourself in a good place because hopefully most of the time, a man as he grows older is being obedient as he's growing older. And from a young man with no kids in his house, he was managing his household well. And as kids added, he just continued to be the same. Hopefully you, you would do well. But um, the question you have to ask yourself on your position is, and, and you said it well, you said to me it means an older man. And that's fine for you. The question is, is that what the Word of God means? Is that what... <laughs> is, that what is that what Paul means? Is that what Peter means when he says, you know, a presbyteros? Is an, an older man? Is that what he means? Is it, it's primarily age-directed. Um, Neil, Nick first. Sorry. Um, well, two things. I think sometimes in today's world, we see so much of elder and deacon being promoted as young, young right. men in the church, and we don't see that as being qualified at all. So it raises a red flag to us in our current culture. Right. Well, the first question to ask yourself is why? Why would you think that way? What's see? I mean, look. Well, our experiences are powerful. Elder in spiritual maturity. Correct. The question to ask yourself is, why would I think that young men cannot be qualified? And you need to be able to supplement that from Scripture, why you would say that. Throw it. Maybe try to put this in um, logical. If you have a church that's just beginning, it's going to be very difficult to determine with the Scripture how these people in your church are. So you may have a plan. I think what you said about relative is very important. Maybe you're a young church, you're learning your people, and you're trying to find people that have these kind of um, uh, attitudes. You know? mm-hmm. But let's say a church is 20 years old, and they've had men in that church for 20 years. Those now men who are 20 or 40, the church is doing what should be doing then those older men should be coming to that point in their life that, you know, they should
could be this kind of man. And that would also allow younger men to, you know, say, you know, there's something about long-term, you know, commitment to these people. So that, I think, at relatively, you know, how a church is 20, 30 years old, you, you have older men that should be available and should be the models. But the young church, like with Paul and Timothy, you know, and Timothy, and he said to Timothy, you know, you know in the scriptures as a child. So you're it, Timothy, even though you're really young and we're looking for, you know, elders, you're it because this is where we are. But I think over time, though, I think if the church should mature, mm-hmm. that um, they should be able to look out among their congregations, the older men, Correct. that, you know, hold these, because if they look out their congregation, they've been around for 30, 40 years, and they still can't find older men, then I would be saying, what is this church doing? There, that, that would be a problem. Mm-hmm. I, I, so therefore, let me ask you this, are you saying that the only men that they should appoint are the older men? No, no, not at all. I'm saying, what does the Bible say? <laughs> <laughs> Whenever we've uh, evaluated a man, um, we've we've obviously we want to evaluate a man on the basis of all of the qualifications and able to teach us how how is his influence with the Word of God in the body. He may not be in the pulpit, he may not be in a Sunday school class because we don't have any, but he's in a small group. How's how's his leadership with the Word of God? Yeah. Yeah. Just just real quickly, I don't and and I could be wrong here, but I don't think this is a one-time test where you pass, you're an elder for life. This is an ongoing thing. So I don't, I really don't think you need to make a distinction between young and old. It's just an ongoing evaluation of the elder. And if a man slips out of qualification? He slips out of qualification. You address despite, it. Despite his age, um, whether it's because of children or whether it's because of double tongue or because he can't teach, I just think they're not elder qualified. Yeah. Rick, you had something you want to add? Yeah, practically, how would that look if you have somebody that's 28 and you have somebody that's 58 married, children having, or 48 having issues? Would you, I mean, if he's a biblically qualified elder and a 48 is not, uh, you know, you can see how he could easily speak truth into the 40-year-old man's life. But, you know, I've also heard yeah, and I would say then you need to show me from here where you can that you have nothing to say to me when in fact I can show you and just did from Psalm 119 that I have more understanding than the aged because I observe your commandments. And, and so here, here, here what I'm not saying. Grace Bible Church is not on a path looking just for young men to, to put forward. We're looking for qualified men. 
And what I want to encourage any of you who have been in a situation where you've watched young men be grabbed and pushed to the front to the exclusion of caring for and shepherding and qualifying older men, you need to shepherd your hearts very well with the Word of God to think rightly and soundly about what an elder is and what a qualified deacon is, what a qualified elder is, what a qualified deacon is. You need to think carefully about that. There, the danger always is to react and over-respond in a way where you'll throw out good things that you should not throw out. And that's where you have to be thoughtful. You have to be careful about what you've experienced. I'm not asking you to throw away your experience. I'm not asking you to lose your skeptical, any skepticism you might have about what you see happening with young men. Young men have unique challenges in which they, they succumb to pride. And you know what? Older men succumb to just being cranky. Okay? So pick. What, what, do you want to, what do you want to pick? But love people. Be involved. Ask questions. Uh, get to know young men. And find out. Mark? Praise God for guys that take a hand because as I understand the role of the elder is to lead the Great point. So if I look at a guy like Dave and say, you can't counsel me about having children. You've got a baby. But that's not the role of an elder. The role of an elder is to relate to the work. And, and if somebody says, well, you can't, where would, where would men be with counseling their wives? I don't know what it's like to be a wife. And we have to be careful to not establish arbitrary um, uh, parameters and guidelines because if, if you say well you haven't parented like I've parented for as long as I have to be able to say something to me I, I would be the first to say I mean look many of you guys in here are, are far ahead of me worth where I'm at I've, my oldest is 11 I just turned 12 um, and I don't sit there when I'm sitting with any of you guys who've got you know 17 year olds I don't sit there and, and think oh you know what and I've got so much to offer you. Um, and yet at the same time, I'm not afraid to try to speak into your life. Why? Not because I think I'm an expert and you're not, but because I'm, a, I'm your brother. And I parent and you parent. And we, and we love, we want to be obedient to scripture, don't we? And so let's, let's look at the word of God together. Um, if we say, you can't shepherd me until you've done this, well then I can't shepherd any couple who has had a miscarriage. Because I have an album with my wife. So I, can't, I have nothing to say to you. So where, do, where are we going to draw the lines? And, and so we have to just really be careful and think biblically here. Eric? Um, the man that wrote those qualifications, the man who was writing the two, was young. First Timothy 4, 12. Let no one look down on your youthfulness, but rather in speech and conduct, love, faith, and purity, show yourself an example of those who believe. Um, yeah, and, and I think you know, as you're describing that, it, it's you know more what you said. It breaks those stereotypes that we've heard. Yeah, I I will hope as we and this is this is the thing that we have loved. I mean, when we were after the church blew up from the inside out, and we got four wheels put back on and um, a few seat belts were working. And people were riding along, and once in a while, an older couple would come and visit this young church. And the first thing that they would say is, wow, this is a young church. 
So you noticed that, didn't you? Yeah, it's kind of hard to not notice. And I would say to them, you know what we need in this church so badly? You. Would you, would you please, you know, don't just think, well, this is all young church. They don't need, you know, they don't want, they don't need, they whatever. You have no idea. Please. And you know what? They did not stay for a long time. And I understand. And I'm not saying I agree with their thinking, but I understand why they, why they didn't. As the church has been growing in size and we've been incorporating more um, middle-aged and gray-haired and, and up, it is an absolute answer to prayer for the elders. Absolute answer to prayer. It is everything that we've wanted. It is everything that any of these young guys in this church need. We have to have it. Um, and I hope that as we grow up as a church, 20, another 10 years from now, 20 years, we'll be able to look back. I hope that the qualification of men in this church for office of elder is overflowing. And I hope that when you look at it, you'll say, uh, there's a 30-year-old, and there's a 68-year-old, and there's a 42-year-old, and um, a guy that we're looking at is 29. He's going up there. And I, I hope the point is qualification. Qualification. Um, because that, look, what, what is, how much do you find written in Paul or in Peter that says, that addresses age? The most you'll see is a word presbyteros. And it had, by that time, New Testament times, lost its sense of just older. I'm not saying it was completely empty of that, but that was not what was used to, to point that out. What do you find space given to? Let me give you a list of character. Let me tell you what a shepherd does, 1 Peter 5. You see character and you see ability. And you see the emphasis on that, not on age. It's not on age. And that is not to say that gives you free reign to go run and ignore the old guys and go after the young guys. That's foolishness. What it gives you reign to go do is develop men, develop men, pour your life into men, disciple men, teach them the word of God, exhort them to love God in his word, go after that, and you know what? Look for qualified men, qualified men, qualified men. Have a good relationship with your church body so that there, there is a trust in what is going on. Um, shepherd one another in those issues as you go. That's what you have the freedom to do, I think, by looking at it. Jerome? And our Lord Jesus is a great example he is. Can I tell you, that's, that, that made me think of something. Can I tell you something that happened at um, uh, Grace Community Church in L.A., MacArthur? They, they, um, they have elders who are, 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 are young. They have pastors that are young. They're, they're in their upper 20s. Some of them have been in their upper 20s. Um, one guy, one of the elders started to say, about one guy in particular, said, I'm, I'm concerned about him. He's, he's, he's like 29. I just think he's, he's, he's young. You know what MacArthur said to him? He said, uh, brother, Jesus was dead by 33. What do you, what do you want? Okay. So, I mean, there's, there's got to be a principle of, I'll, I'll tell you this. We asked, I asked, um, I asked Rick Holland, in, um, who's on staff over at Grace Community Church in L.A., 
when we were at the process of, of bringing on um, Jacob, and I asked him, I said, what do you think about a, um, our elder board bringing on a guy who's uh, you know, younger than the rest of us that way? And he said, you know what? I think because you guys have a, a balance of age, that adding a man at that age is, is not a hindrance to you at all. If you were all that age, that might be something to think about. It might not, depending on qualification. Um, but he's, he thought that was a, another benefit for us. Is uh, That's a non-scriptural one. That's a, that's a preferential one. It's a, there's, there's some practical wisdom in that, too. Um, so, yeah. If, if you have, just a quick question. If you have an elder who um, has become an elder and they've got kids that are 8, 9, 10 years old, and 7, 8 years down the road, the kids off go the road. off the deep end. Yeah. What is that? Because I mean, that's not something you can really shepherd an elder about, I don't think. Or we, we actually had that happen to us. And um, the way that we handled it um, was we knew about what was going on. We saw what was going on long before the decision was ever made by that elder and by the, all of the elders to, to, to have them step down. But what we did do is we, we said, brother, um, and he was making it known to us, and we were making observations to him, and we said, here's what we want you to do. We're going to, um, we want you to have your area of responsibilities of oversight um, become less, and the time that you would have taken in those, we want you to pursue your children in your home unlike you ever have before. So it was not an immediate, you're done. It was, we see something that's um, not encouraging, it's, it's, it's troubling, address it. Um, and he did for the period of months, and um, it was not getting better. And so in his own agreement with us and us with him, he stepped down. And that's what we would do in any situation. I, I would hope, pray, that if it was in regards to that or if it was in regards to um, not being temperate or not being prudent, um, being not addicted to wine, um, not having a good reputation with those outside the church, that, that the elders would address them. But we tried to do it in a way that was, um, the word that comes to my mind is, is redemptive rather than punitive. Let's give the man an opportunity, like anybody, to, to evaluate and address his um, sin, his, his weakness, his failures. And let's see if, if we can make some, see the tide turn. And it wasn't, as we kept a, a close eye together, and it was clear. So um, I would hope we would do that with any one of us. I would bless it. But... The only way that that works is if your elders' lives are close to one another and you know what's going on in each other's lives and you have friendship with one another. You're not just men who pull together twice a month for a board meeting, but you're men who love each other and you meet together and you shepherd one another. Um, so. yeah, now clearly, though, for gross sin, like an elder having an affair or something. Adultery. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that, that, that's a, there are some sins that you don't, yeah, you're done. So, good. I guess I'm struggling with that because um, 
when you look at Isaiah 6, it talks about him being told to go preach, and you're not going to have anybody listen. Mm -hmm. And so, how can an elder assume responsibility for the results, not his calling to his son? It wasn't, so did you hear what we were talking about in terms of his kids didn't believe? Yes. That's not what the issue was. The issue that we were addressing in the elder was he was not standing over his household well. And that's a character and an ability issue. Um, so that's why he stepped down. Not because his children were not believers, but because he was not shepherding his household well. Yeah, the issue, it's really important to keep in front of you that the issue here is the man. The issue is not the man's kids. Character of the man. The challenge with that um, is in Titus 1, the, the qualification for the elder in regards to his household. See, some translations say he must have children who believe. And that is a, a possible a way to interpret that. The, another way to interpret that is uh, has faithful children. Um, our position is that it means faithful children um, at Grace Bible Church. And the reason for that is because um, all of the qualifications, there's a number of reasons, all of the qualifications for elder have to do with the man and his character, not the outcome of what people do with his ministry or his, his teaching. Um, he, he cannot be held accountable for his children believing. He is, God, God is the one who determines those things. What can he held, be held accountable for is that his children would be faithful under his leadership. Um, I think that's a, some, I, I've heard some guys say that First Timothy 3 is the, the description of a young household young children uh, Titus is the older and I don't think that's what Paul's doing in my opinion, I think that they are parallel that First Timothy 3 helps you understand what Titus 1 is saying and Titus 1 helps you understand what First Timothy 3 is saying um, keeping a household under control with all dignity is a child who's being faithful under his father's managing um, if that's the case, every time an elder has a baby, he's got to step down. Yeah. Or he adopts, or a, a young child, or whatever. I mean, because if it's children who believe. Yeah. Yeah. You find that in a lot of cases where there is rebellion in the children, disobedience, that you can go to the parents and their relationship with the Lord, there's rebellion, disobedience. So there is a model. There are times when I, I think, look, this is this is not a formula in the sense that if you stand over your household well, your children will automatically respond to you. It's not that simple in life. I think it is possible for a man to stand over his household well, and but he'll have perhaps one of his kids will rebel hard against him, 
in spite of his standing over his household well, and I think that man would not be qualified, in my opinion, um, even though he did everything he could. Because if there is, if the household is in disarray, um, there might be something in there he needs to, to, to think about and step back on. Um, so it's just, you know, you gotta, you just gotta, you gotta work together, you gotta pray together, you gotta talk together. Jerome? Um, two things when you said that, though, come to mind, you came up to his own. Say that again? The scripture says he came up to his own, his own received him not. Yeah. And then the father said, you know, does the bridegroom forget her dress? But they did it to God. Right on, as far as you know, you look at the man, you know, the character of that man, and you have to just weigh out all the other stuff because our Heavenly Father knows so much, so well about you know children that sometimes go astray. It breaks the heart. Absolutely. Let me um, let me do this, guys, since we are um, uh, out of time. Go over to the women's, the, the, the section um, number three, where there's some blanks to fill in. I'm going to give you those blanks and let you look at them on your own. Um, so you go past the small print that I have for you, the one, two, three, five, six, and then go to be dignified. Do you see that? That's the same qualification for deacons in 3.8. So there's nothing to fill in there. Um, just go back and review that. This is for the woman, not malicious gossips. Here's the blank. Slanderous accusations are not thrown at others. Slanderous accusations. The word there is um, the word for devil, slanderer. Um, temperate, in verse 11, uh, is avoiding whatever might cloud and prevent clear-headed thinking. Clear-headed is the word you want to put in the blank. The words you want to put in the blank, clear-headed. Faithful in all things means trustworthy in all matters entrusted to her, whether great or small. Trustworthy. In all matters. And then number four, deacons, uh, summing up in verse 13, deacons, highly respected, and here's the word, emboldened, um, E-M, and then boldened, B-O-L-D-E-N-E-D, emboldened servants in the mission. Now, here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to give you guys the um, freedom that if you need to go, you can go. But what I want to do is I want to walk through any of you who want to stay, and if it's just one of you, I'll do it. Um, I want to walk through why we have the position of deacons' wives and not deaconesses in verse 11. And there's six reasons there. So if you want to get up and walk out, you, we are officially dismissed at this point. You can do that. Um, I'm going to try, try to do this within about 10 minutes. So if you think you can stay and want to do that, you're more than welcome to. You will not offend me if you get up and leave. Okay? Um, so you see verse 11. Women must likewise be dignified, not malicious gossips, but temperate, faithful in all things. I believe ESV says wives. Is that correct? NIV, I think, says wives. There are two options here with this word in verse 11 uh, that make you then go one of two different directions in regards to your interpretation. One is you can obviously take deacons, wives, or you can say... um, uh, just women uh, or, or deaconesses. The word that is used there in verse 11 is the word for woman in general. Just women. Okay? So what you're saying, <clears throat> if you're saying it is a deacon's wife, you're saying it is a woman who happens to be the wife of a deacon. Um, 
if you're saying it's a deaconess, what you're saying is it's a woman, and because he's been talking about elders and deacons, it's obviously deaconesses at this point. Okay, so you're saying woman means deaconess in one view, the other you're saying it's woman, the wife of a deacon. Okay? Um, both positions are held by really good men, good churches, um, and both positions have strong points and, and have some weaknesses. And really what it comes down to is, is you have to pick the one that you think has the least amount of weaknesses and the weaknesses that you can live with the most. And I think, um, I love our position. Um, the elders of Grace Bible Church believe that it's wives of deacons, that that's the best translation. Um, I think there's fewer weaknesses to the view. Um, in fact, in my opinion, I don't think there's really any. But um, this means then that we do not believe Paul is highlighting a third office. Verse uh, 2 of chapter 3, an overseer office. Verse 8, deacons an office. Verse 11, women. Our position is he's not highlighting another office. Verse 12, deacons again, back to the office. Do you understand? Okay. That, that means that's what we're saying. We're saying that a third office of servant leadership is not in view. Why do we believe that? That Paul is uh, referring to these women as simply the wives of deacons and not a third office of servant leadership parallel to the deacon? Six reasons. Number one, you see it there. Paul does not use a third specific leadership title or office position in verse 11 like he did with both overseer and elder, verse 2, and deacon, verse uh, 8 and 12. Rather, he used the, gen uh, the generic word women, okay? For example, let me, let me get, play the, the old Sesame Street game with you. One of these things is not like the other. Police officer. Fireman. Woman. One of these things is not like the other. The first two are titles. They're referring to people, but they're referring to a position also. Woman isn't. The word's just, that's not what the word is. Do you understand? So he could have, if he wanted to, use a different form, use a different word that would have highlighted an actual position. But he didn't. Okay, number two. The placement of verse 11 sandwiched in the middle of the deacon qualifications seems logically disjoint if Paul is introducing then a new office. If Paul meant deaconess at that point, it would have seemed more logical to introduce them at the end of verse 12 or verse 13 when he was finally done with deacons. If Paul was not finished with his thought for the deacons, why then did he inject another office category in the middle before finishing the one on deacons? That's what you have to say and hold to if you take it as a, 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 an office for women. However, if Paul uses wives of deacons, and that's what he means, that fits absolutely, in my opinion, coherently. Why? Especially in verse 12, he starts talking about the husband of one wife. Okay? Thirdly, historically, we do not even, we don't find conclusive evidence for women deacons or deaconesses during the New Testament times. There's nothing historically that has evidenced anything at New Testament times. You don't have it in scripture. Um, even you don't have it, uh, you, don't, you just don't see any evidence in the New Testament times of, of, of a deaconess position. The first positive identification of deaconesses is found in writings of the Eastern churches of the Roman Empire dated at 230 AD, AD 230. Okay, now let me give you a sense of 230 years. 
Roughly 230 years ago, we had, uh, we signed the Declaration of Independence. How much have words changed since then? If, if you are going to say, well, in, in AD 230, the Eastern churches in, our, in the empire, uh, they had deaconesses, so you see, that's not that far off. You know, it's, it's very possible that it would be that way in, in, the, in, in the first century of Paul. Really? The things that we have present in our lives today, 230 years later, that are very common, uh, you've got to be really careful. 230 years is a long time. You can't just say what, what, what we have today was obviously what they had 230 years ago. So you have to be careful from the argument of history. Um, and until they find something in a church somewhere that there's deaconesses, uh, that's one thing. Secondly, whether or not it's right that they did it is a whole other thing, right? Number four. The majority of English translations go with wives rather than women or deaconesses. Now, why do most of the versions go with wives? They're, they're trying to help you out. They're trying to be interpretive for you. That means their group of translators decided that the, the word woman had to mean wives for the, many of these same reasons that we did. And so they just helped you by giving you the word wife or uh, yeah, wives. They just helped you with that. Why does the NAS just say women? Because the NAS has always strived to not be interpretive for you, to not make those decisions for you. That's why it's so awkward sometimes. And this is one of those times where it would actually help my position, our position, if they had been interpretive and done what all the other ones did. But I admire them for not having done that because they just said the word is woman. We're going to translate it as woman or women, plural, Okay. So they chose not to be interpreted. Number five, wives of deacons avoids any potential conflict with Paul's earlier teaching on women uh, that they should not be out in a position of authority over men in the church. First Timothy 2.12, since they would be as a wife of a deacon, they'd be under the ministry of their husbands. That flows within the thought of First Timothy. And number six, I think this is very powerful too. The early church in Acts 6 decided to go with all men servants, prototype deacons, when it would have been easy to assign women to care for the widows. I mean, if there was a time in the early church, if there was a time, because women have this unique and awesome ministry to women that only women can really have. If there was a time to, to do it, it was that time, and they didn't. You can see the guys, as they said, should we be serving tables? So they're looking around. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Should we get women to do this? So what does this mean at the deacon level here at the church? This means that the deacon application process, which a husband goes through, that means that his wife also goes through it because verse 11 has qualifications for her as a wife. Okay? Um, you can imagine then why it would be important for a wife to not be a gossip. Moving between two different people, and she's really upset because she didn't get fed, and, and, she, and you know why? It's because they like her more than... than and boy, I tell you, zip, husband, one one tongue man, one word man, wife, no gossip. She needs to be temperate. She needs to be able to also be clear-headed under her husband's leadership as she did that. She needs to be trustworthy in all things. So you can see where these qualifications would fit. And so when we have our deacons go through the same type of evaluation process, there's a point at which the wife fills out the qualifications for her and, and talks about her own life from there. And, and when we interview, we interview not just the man, but we interview the, the wife also. Okay? Uh, so that's our position. Zach? Does this also mean that in the 
in a position of, of deacon, their wives are involved in a way that elders' wives are not? Yes, great point. And, and how so? Um, there appears to be a way in which the wife is thought to be naturally included into what the, the, what the husband does who is a deacon in a way that a wife is not thought to be involved in, a, in the way that a, an elder shepherds you. And I think it has to do primarily with the, the shepherding of the word of God. We will give attention to the word and to prayer and the elder needs to be able to teach. And he has a teaching ministry of which his wife uh, benefits as uh, from his teaching, but she is not a co-teacher with him because that would then violate her uh, position as a woman, her role in the church. And so... Uh, Elder, because it requires the ability to teach formally like that, uh, and it's listed there in a way that it's not for deacons, it immediately says uh, that's going to constrain a wife from being able to participate in his teaching aspect of his shepherding. That's our opinion. That's our interpretation. I think it, that's sound, obviously, and, um, but there are churches that it's Pastor John and Pastor Shelley. You know, husband and wife, and, and I, I've only been involved in churches prior to this where there were deaconesses, women who would serve as you know, deacons in the church and stuff. And um, my wife was a deacon at Grace Community in LA, and then we repented. So. <laughs> yes. Um, as an elder, how do you how do you interact with these qualifications? Um, like, do you read them and say, oh, my God, grace on this guy, and I need to keep striving to be this guy? Or, yeah. We currently, um, uh, as, I'll, I'll tell you personally. Personally, um, I am reading through this book with uh, three other guys who are not elders, but that I want to expose them to it. So I'm, I'm, I'm interacting with it myself personally. And as I started to do that, I thought it was... Six years ago that the elders um, read through it together, and there are three or four new elders on the board that weren't back then, and that book, uh, the book is Biblical Eldership by Alexander Strout, uh, I guess the best book out there on Biblical Eldership. Um, we decided we were going to read through it again, so we, that's what we've been reading through as elders. Um, Sunday afternoon, is it Sunday afternoon? Yeah, Sunday afternoon when we had our elder meeting last week, we read through um, the Paul's instruction to Timothy, that chapter, and we were walking right through these qualifications, reading through what he said, and just evaluating them again and evaluating ourselves. So we're we just try to keep it in front of us formally that way once in a while. And what each man does, you know, I don't know if Scott has things that he personally thinks about or, or works through. I do. Um, there are 14 qualifications in First Timothy. And uh, so I try to keep the one and two to two weeks. Wow, praise God. I gotta be able to down. That's good. Sorry? No, that's good. <laughs> that would be a very easy way to keep it's it in It's also point. very good to go to your life and to ask how you use the peaceful, gentle, temperate, the good manager of your home. She sees someone's hands clearly yeah. and you do how you're living that area that grows in your prayer. Wives can very gently and very godly way help us see the things that we sometimes can't see because of the laws that are in our mind. Right. Lastly, as you guys run out, um, 
What this is is a prayerful guide for you, hopefully. It takes the seven qualifications, and what Scott said triggered my thought. It takes the seven qualifications for the, the deacon, not, not for the wife, but for the deacon, and it assigns them to each day. Each prayer starts off the same way at the top, but the main paragraph in the middle is the one that isolates the qualification. And I try to just word it in a way where it's prayerful about it, where you can pray about being a man of dignity on Monday. On Tuesday, you can pray about being not double-tongued. On Wednesdays, you can be praying about not being addicted to wine. This is a way that you can prayerfully keep these qualifications before you as you um, go throughout the week. Okay? And we'll talk about this. Just Guys, just turn in homework next time. Okay? Uh, so hang on to your homework, and we'll uh, do it next time. Thank you guys for being... Hang on. Yeah. Um, I know nobody does their homework on Friday nights before Bill starts on Never. Saturday. Never. Next homework will take more time than that. So just giving you a heads up to look at that. Not that that would apply to anybody here. No, not at all. But for Jim. God bless you guys. Thank you so much for coming. I don't want to be treated that way. I'd want to have the opportunity to.